to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host Chris Desmond. This is a show where we try and figure out how to get better at doing the hard stuff that makes life exciting. Today on the show I've got a return guest for you, Lisa Tumati. Lisa first appeared on the show about two and a half years ago. Yeah, it's been a it's been a super long time, but didn't actually feel like it when we were chatting. It felt like we were just getting back into things. Lisa, for those of you who don't know her, she's going to introduce herself in the episode, but she's an incredible ultra athlete. She's an author. She is a speaker. She's running coach and mental toughness and resilience coach and trainer, and just an all round impressive person at going out and doing doing hard things um, so some of our conversation today focuses around that mental toughness through running and, and what that's what's it, that's helped her achieve but a lot of the conversation as well focuses around her new book called Relentless which is about her mum and uh, her mum having a having a brain aneurysm having a stroke and the recovery process that Lisa and her mum have gone through in the face of overwhelming odds, really. So there's a bit of both in in this conversation for people. So I really hope that you enjoy getting uncomfortable with Lisa and I today. Lisa Tamati, welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. It's awesome to have you here today. Thanks very much, Chris. It's very nice to be here. Lisa, we were just saying that it's been like two and a half years since we last had you on the podcast. Um, hopefully a couple of new listeners since that time. So for the people that haven't got all the way back and listened to your, uh, listened to your first episode with me, do you mind just kind of giving us a little bit of a snapshot of who Lisa Tamati is? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because yeah, I, I, um, no one will remember that one. That was so long ago. And oh, it was good though. It was good. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, so I've uh, got a background as a ultra endurance athlete or ultra marathon runner, more specifically. So I had about 25 years of, of competing in, in some of the world's coolest, most craziest races around the planet. <clears throat> so I've done over 70,000 kilometers in that time and done a heck of a lot in different deserts. So a couple of thousand Ks in the Sahara, so Moroccan Sahara a couple of times, the Tunisia and the Arabian Desert, Libyan Desert, Niger, Jordan, Gobi Desert in uh, China as well, Death Valley in the USA a couple of times, in different parts of the outback of Australia, and then also in different parts of the Himalaya, uh, in the Indian Himalayas and uh, the Nepalese Himalayas. Big dramas there, because it wasn't that great in the mountains. And uh, ran through New Zealand at one stage, right, right from Bluff up to Cape Reinga, uh, for for charity, doing 2,250 k's in 42 days, which nearly bloody killed me. And yeah, I've just had lots of adventures and fun over the years and lots of disasters and successes and failures, uh, as you do when you're pushing the limits. Now coaching like a ton of athletes, we've got 700 athletes that we coach through our company and right into health and biohacking and longevity, because I'm getting old, I'm sort of into all of those spaces. And, and I've had a bit of a journey of the last four years with my mum. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but because I've got a new book coming out about her story. So yeah, I'm the author of three books, done a bunch of documentaries, that type of thing, and a lot of speaking. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's me. <laughs> mm, nice. There's a, there's a lot there. And I've got a couple of questions around it, but I guess the first is like, why ultra running? Like, wh- why did you pick that as something that you were interested in doing? Because I was totally untalented at running, Chris. I was really like no no special abilities. What I found was I 
I loved adventure and I, I loved travel, right? And in my early 20s, I had a relationship with a young man from Austria who, who was very much into traveling the world on bicycles and things like that. And he was a really amazing athlete. And so I tried to keep up with him for a few years and failed miserably. But I learned a lot about myself and what I was capable of. And I pushed the boundaries of what, you know, my com outside my comfort zone, for sure. And that sort of led then, you know, the relationship went south after five years. Actually, when I was crossing the middle of the Libyan desert as an expedition that went south, you'll have to read the book for that story. That's quite a major one, <laughs> doing an illegal crossing of the Libyan desert. But yeah, so, so from that experience, I fell in love with traveling and, and adventure and um, pushing my, my body out in nature and finding out who I am. And I found a lot of, at the beginning, it was definitely I wanted to prove things to people that, you know, especially the boyfriend at the time and also my dad. So I grew up in a family where sort of toughness was what was valued and, you know, mental toughness and physical toughness. So I sort of had this innate need in my early uh, adult years to be accepted and to be cool and to do that in my family you had to be bloody tough uh, so so I, I had a lot of self-esteem issues and things like that you know and I found that running really really helped me build who I was as a person because when you're out doing all these extreme sort of adventure stuff you know you you find out an awful lot about yourself and when you overcome all these obstacles and you you manage to do these crazy amazing things it does change your perspective on what you're capable of. So to, to answer your, your question in short, yeah, I grew up with a really, you know, typical Kiwi upbringing, but it, lots of outdoor time and lots of fun and adventures. And then that sort of expanded in my early 20s with the boyfriend at that stage. And then it just went on from there. So when I broke up with boyfriend after the crossing of the Libyan desert, I was pretty in bad shape mentally and physically. So this was a 250k crossing and it was a, an illegal expedition across the Libyan desert. We only had two litres of water a day each, which was, you know, in 40 degrees plus heat, just like ridiculous. So I did a lot of damage to my kidneys and the relationship obviously broke up and there was a lot of pressure and lots of horrible things going on. But after that time, that period of time and the recovery and so on, I started to think, I read about this race called the Marathon de Sables in Morocco and I was reading it in a magazine and I was sort of comparing it to what I'd done in the Libyan desert and at that time it was touted as the toughest race on earth, 240 k's across the Tunis uh, so Moroccan Sahara and you had to carry your food and your, your equipment but you, you got all the water supplied and you had nine litres a day and you had doctors and you had them in helicopters and planes and journalists and stuff and so I was thinking hang on a minute I reckon I could do this <laughs> and I'd actually never run a marathon or anything so I just signed up for that and that was the beginning of the end really <laughs> <laughs> absolutely loved it did pretty well at it and realized I wasn't as useless and hopeless as I'd been told I was and although I struggled I didn't have a great lung capacity or vo2 max or any talent as a runner I found that I could go really long I had a lot of endurance so I ended up doing longer and longer races, basically. I've been an asthmatic since I was a little toddler. So a severe asthmatic as a child. So I was in and out of hospital my whole childhood with asthma. And so I'd never had a good set of lungs for running. And I also didn't really have the body shape for it. I'm rather an athletic but muscular build. So quite, you know, muscular, not, not light and tiny like a lot of the top runners are. 
But what I found is that didn't really matter so much in ultramarathon because it was really about what's upstairs. Mm. And the longer the race, the better I did. So even though I didn't have a lot of talent, eventually I started to get quite, quite good at it. Yeah. As long as it was long. <laughs> <laughs> where does your head go in those long races like when the body starts to hurt like well, where does your mind go or where do you take your mind and this for me is, is the key about well, running in general on ultramarathon certainly is how much can you push through the limitations in your own mind because you go to some pretty dark places when you're in the hurt locker and in some say i don't know 200k race somewhere there are going to be a hundred times throughout that race where you just don't think you can take another step and the fatigue and the exhaustion starts to pile up the pain and the body's starting to do things like reject the food and you can't digest and vomiting and GI issues and things like that. So you have to be able to know what your why is like, that is the biggest thing. You have to have a really strong reason to be out there doing this. And for me in the early days, it was definitely to prove something. And that's a very strong motivating factor. Later on, it became more positive reasons for doing it, like for charities or that type of thing. And also for the love of the adventure, but it was understanding your why. When you set a goal, say you listen to this and you decide, right, I'm going to run a marathon. You have to have a big conversation with yourself. Is why are you doing this? Like, is it, and it's not the surface level, the first thing that pops in your head that might be, oh, I want to lose a bit of weight and get a bit fitter, you know? Yeah, I'll do an uh, ultra marathon. <laughs> or even a marathon or something. You know, I want to do this or that. Um, then you've got to sort of go like layers of the onion, peel down into the really deep reasons as to why you're wanting to do this. And, you know, often there'll be some deeper reason, like, everyone's told me I'm useless and I could never do that and I want to show them or I want to be a good role model for my kids I desperately want them to see me as being a fit and healthy mom those are real emotional movers and when you can get to that deep reason of why then you've got something that will when you're in the deep dark moments of any event or in the training of that event you'll think on that why and that will help you overcome the the obstacles that you're going to face and you're going to persist through those obstacles and not give up. So one of the main things is to have that really, really strong why. And then a lot of the, the tips and tricks are things like when you're actually running and you're overwhelmed with the distance that you've got to do. I remember standing at the start of the run through New Zealand and I was, you know, steering down the barrel of 2,250 kilometers. And I'd been so busy with the organization that I hadn't even thought about anything you know, actual running. And then all of a sudden at six o'clock in the morning, I meant to start and I just had a massive panic attack. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. This is impossible. You know, I started hyperventilating and panicking and crying. And I went over to my mum who was growing for me along with a bunch of other people. And I, and I hid behind the car with her and had a big cry session as you do. <laughs> and had a panic <laughs> and I'm like I can't I can't do this 2000 plus case how am I going to do it ma and she was just like gave me some of the best advice I've ever heard and that was I want you to stop thinking about the 2000 something that's going to totally overwhelm you all I want you to do is focus on getting to that power pole up there and I want you to focus on the here and now and getting out of the gates getting to that power pole getting through the first half an hour and don't let your mind wander any further than that. Because when you're in that state of like desperation 
and you're like, you're like, oh my God, this is too scary and too big and too overwhelming. If you start looking at all that's ahead, you'll panic. But if you can pull your focus in and you can break it down into that tiny step just to get up to there, then you can cope with that. When you get to that point, then you have another little goal and another little goal. And then when you're feeling a little bit better, then you can lift your eyes up to see where the horizon is, you know? But it's mm. breaking it down into little wee tiny pieces that you can cope with. You know, you know the saying, how do you need an elephant? You know, one bite at a time. And that is exactly, you know, this was definitely a massive great elephant. <laughs> it took yeah. me 42 days to eat. <laughs> but breaking it down into those tiny little wee pieces of the puzzle that really helped me mentally do that. Um, yeah. So those yeah. are a couple of tricks. There's lots of others. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're really good ones. And I think with the, um, that, that breakdown into the small goals is, Hey, I'm going to run to the next power pole. And then actually sometimes people find it's helpful to give themselves an out at that point. Like I'm going to yeah. run to the next power pole. And then if I feel I need to stop, then I can. And yeah. by the time you get to the next power pole, you know that you're not going to need to stop, yeah. but, having that there also just allows you not to have to think about the extra what 2249 k's that you've got to run after that <laughs> the with the why as well that i think that's a really important concept as well and i think like the way that you said it how yours changed over time is also really cool because people often think hey i need this big grandiose positive why that is going to motivate me and uplift me. <laughs> but actually you like when you started, you're like, you could almost view it in kind of a negative light. Yeah, it's like, it I was. need to prove myself here. Yeah. And I think like with that, with our motivations is a couple of things. Like we either run away from pain or we run towards pleasure. Oh, so to, to start with running away from pain is an awesome motivator. Is it like, yeah, I want to prove myself but the trick with kind of persevering over time is that once you've got far enough away from pain, it stops being painful. You stop feeling it anymore. So that's when you need to flip your wire around to, to think, okay, what am I running towards now rather than what am I running away from? Otherwise that's a, that's a spot that people often, often fall down in as well. I totally agree. And actually we use this analogy in some of the mental toughness coaching I do. So you, you have thousands of, of decisions that you have to make every day, right? And so you come to a fork in the road and it, you might be on a weight loss journey and there's chocolate sitting on one side and there's a salad sitting on the other. And, and in that moment, you've got like, we, we sort of think in 30 second blocks as humans, we're sort of like, oh, pleasure, pain, pleasure, obviously chocolate. Mm. <laughs> um, and we, 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 we go towards the immediate pr pr uh, pleasure unless we can lift our eyes and see what's around the corner from that chocolate. And okay, one piece of chocolate isn't going to do any problem. But when you repeat that behavior over and over, you can see where that's going to lead to weight gain and problems with your health, etc. And if you can lift your, so, so we will always as humans go towards pleasure. But what you've got to do is make the pleasure a bigger goal. So it's not the, the, the immediate pleasure of the taste of the chocolate. It's the, 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 bigger, the bigger goal is to be healthier, leaner, fitter. And the, the way with the salad is going to go get you towards that goal. And when you look around the corner, instead of making this impulsive 30-second decision, that can sometimes stop you doing that and actually make you realize, yes, I'm still going towards pleasure, but I'm going towards the pleasure of being fitter and, and leaner. Um, you know, a couple of months down the track, but we don't automatically do that. So we have to practice that like a muscle. Um, mm. 
you know, so they, there's lots and lots of brain tricks that you can do when you understand how the brain works and you can um, overcome like some of your programming, your subconscious programming, for example, like we might read a self-help book, right? And then you go, right, I get it. I understand it. It's all in my logical thinking brain and I'm going to do this. And then you find yourself the next day immediately, you're not doing the stuff that you're meant to be doing. Why is that? It's because we have the subconscious programming that, that we've downloaded as usually in our childhood or in our young years, when we didn't have a filter on what we wanted to put in there, it just got downloaded for us basically um, by our parents, by our community, our peers, all that sort of thing. And we didn't think about what was going into our brain, but that has become our operating system. If you want to make an analogy between computers and our brain. Now, as adults, we've still got that old outdated operating system going in the background, in the background of being our subconscious. And we can do all we like with our logical thinking brain going, right, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And then, hello, along comes the subconscious and sabotages us. So what we actually need to do is go and examine our subconscious and to start working out what are these some of these limiting beliefs that have been downloaded into my brain that are stopping me getting there and then actually going in and reprogramming that. And you say, well, how the hell do you reprogram it? Well, there's a mixture of things that you can do. You can do things like self-hypnosis. You can do um, you know, positive affirmations and, and um, planning and, and, and catching yourself. I think the most powerful one for me I do a lot of self-hypnosis stuff, which is, you know, listening to positive tapes and things like that. But I also do, um, oh God, where was I going with this? Um, so you're, you're, you're catching yourself in the moment. So when you, when you catch yourself having a, a thought that's not productive, say uh, it's an angry reaction and you've decided your goal is to be calm and peaceful and happy and so on and you catch this angry reaction that you're having to something say it's the traffic someone cuts you off in traffic and you get really angry now when you get angry you're actually doing yourself harm because all your hormones are going up the whops and your blood sugar's going spiking and your cortisol's just gone up and your adrenaline's just gone up and by you know giving the guy the fingers out the window is actually your amygdala is just jumped in and, and you've reacted before you've even used your logical brain, right? So if you can like go, oh, you catch yourself in that moment doing that behavior and then you go, now hang on a minute. I'm not going to do this because this is actually hurting me. It's not hurting the guy that I'm doing the fingers at. It's actually damaging my own physiology and I'm going to take control here. So you do some deep breathing and you start doing some logical exercise like counting backwards from 100, something that turns your your um, prefrontal cortex on and then all of a sudden those those hormones those neurotransmitters that were being released into your brain start to slow slow down and it gives your logical brain time to catch up and you can overcome that anger response you know that's just one example so you catch yourself you own it you go oh oops i'm doing this and then you replace it with the, the thought or the process that you want to have so catch own replace Every time you do something that you're not happy with, catch yourself doing it. Think, oh, now how do I want to do this? Own the fact that you've gone down that pathway and then replace it with a, a good, the good behavior. So it's training yourself like you would Pavlov's dog. Mm. 
<laughs> retraining your brain very slowly. And it's, this course takes, takes time. But when you do all these things, you start to make yourself uh, a stronger person. So when you have negative self-talk, for example, you know, a lot of people struggle with this, and certainly I have in the, in the past especially, uh, where you go, I can't do that, I'm too useless for this, and I don't have any talent at that. When you hear that voice going, start examining that voice and say, well, hang on, where's this coming from? And who is this? And this is my ego that's trying to protect me usually. But if I can override that voice and go, no, hang on, that, that um, seven-year-old girl that was told she was useless is not who you are as a woman today, for example. And you're going to, I'm not listening to this. I've, I've heard you, but I'm not, I'm not going down that track. And I am capable and I can do this. And you're replacing it over again over and over again when you hear that negative voice pop up in your head and you think where the hell did that come from mm. so it's almost like a it's almost like you've got another step after the replace is the the reflect say actually why is this behavior happening to start with like and then how yeah. can i kind of bring it back Love to it. the root cause of it i'll add that to my use, my, my thing i catch up the place and and reflect yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Nice. Um, we're talking about retraining the brain at the moment, and and I think that's quite a good segue into what you've been going through uh, over the last four four years, and in, in the book that's coming out soon. And I think last time we last time we talked, you were kind of you were deep in this process with your with your yeah, mom at that stage. So do you want to, for, for people that haven't listened to the last, the last episode, I think we touched yeah. on it, but um, what, what happened with your mum? Yeah. And so what sent you on this journey? Last time we talked, I was sort of deep in the, in the, in the proverbial with mum and this, and so I probably wasn't able to reflect on it very well yet. So four years ago, my mum had an aneurysm, which is a bleed in the brain, like a massive bleed in the brain. When she was first diagnosed, uh, so when we first went to the hospital, sorry, you know, collapsed on the floor the ambulance came they took her to the hospital the ambulance driver said i think she's having uh, some sort of neurological event a stroke or an aneurysm the doctor decided to ignore her and um, ignore the the ambulance person unfortunately and so they said oh no she's having a uh, migraine and we'll just give her some painkillers so we were left for six hours with the you know her brain her brain bleeding and we didn't know so this was a disaster absolute medical absolute disaster um and I didn't know at that stage what the hell to ask for or what was going on or, or, or what to do. And mum had had migraines in the past. Um, and so this was a red herring. And after six hours, I, I rang a friend of mine who was a paramedic and she's crewed for me all over the world. And I said, can you get up here? Because you know these guys and I'm not getting any results. I don't know what to ask for, but we're in deep trouble. And so she came up and she just took one look at mum and said, no, she's having a stroke. Um, and so she went to the doctor and said, get her a CT scan now. And when they came back from the CT scan, it was blood right throughout the brain. So this was a complete disaster. Um, they, um, Megan didn't think that she was going to survive. The doctors didn't think she was going to survive, but they decided they had to get her through down to Wellington, where they had a neurological uh, ward, um, and see if they could help her. So then it was another 12 hours wait for the air ambulance. And in this whole time, I'm going, I've been caught absolute short here. I have no idea. I'm going, to, I'm going to research the hell out of this. And I'm going to really, really fight. If, if I can just get mum through this critical phase, you know, and I had no idea what we were in for at that point. 
I remember my dad coming up to me and going, oh, well, we better start planning the funeral. And I was like, dad, she's alive, she's breathing, and we're going to fight with everything we have. And I started to give the family jobs because when everyone's in a panic mode, you give them logical thinking things to do so that that stops their, once again, their amygdala from going out of control. I said, you get down to Wellington, get with my brothers, get everybody organized, ring, you know, family, etc. get them down there. We eventually get down to Wellington. I stayed with mum in the ambulance, uh, air ambulance with her. We arrive in Wellington Hospital 18 hours after the event. They get us straight into surgery and they put a stent in to start relieving the blood from the brain. Two days later, she's still alive, but, you know, in and out of a, a coma-like state. And they're deciding whether to cut into her brain to put in a, a clamp over the vessel to stop it from bleeding or to go up through the arteries. Now, there's a 50% chance of dying on the table if you go in through the brain. And they said, in the other way, we're going to have to do it in two operations. So there was risks both ways. But I decided to go through the, the artery way. They did that. And then she was in and out of a coma for three weeks. And this whole time, I'm just like studying everything I possibly can about what's happening to her and possible ways that I can help her because I didn't want to be caught short again. What I want people to hear out of this story is that you have to take ownership of your health. You cannot just give it up to someone else and expect everything to go hunky-dory. You've got to be willing to put the research and the time in it. Because I did that, I actually caught a whole lot of things that would have been deadly for her. So after that three-week period, mum eventually stabilised and had survived but she had virtually no higher function left. She had a, a couple of words that she could use, but that was about it. She had no memory, no idea of who or what she was. She had no ability to control any bodily functions. She could not even like chew or sleep or, or sit or any, anything that was, you know, if I said to her, push a button or stuff, she wouldn't know what I was saying or how to push a button. It was, it was really bad. They transferred her back to New Plymouth after she'd stabilized and I started to see that she was even getting worse in New Plymouth than she'd been in Wellington. And I started to recognize that she was having symptoms that I recognized from altitude training. So I'd done a lot of uh, racing at altitude. And when you don't have enough oxygen in the body, which is what happens at altitude, obviously, infections go really crazy and you start, the bacteria starts to multiply and so on and you get infections. And so I was seeing things in her that said to me, because I'd had this before, she's got an oxygen deficit and they'd taken the supplemental oxygen off her. And so I asked if they could put the oxygen back on and they wouldn't because she said, no, she doesn't need it. So I started thinking and I came up, like, I think she's got sleep apnea and because she was sleeping 20 plus hours a day, this was dire. So they wouldn't do a sleep apnea test. If you have a stroke, you should definitely have a sleep apnea test because some people with a stroke, have a part of their brain that gets knocked out, which controls your breathing at night. So I got an outside consultant. I brought them in. They did the test. I got in trouble with the doctors. Didn't really care. And it came back with severe sleep apnea. So her oxygen, you know, when they put the little oxygen measuring the thing. Probe. Yeah, the little thing just to say how much oxygen is in your blood. Hers was down around 70% at night, which is just deadly. You're knocking off whatever brain cells were left. We're getting knocked off. So we got her on the CPAP machine. So that was the first one that I had from the research that I was doing. And then I was thinking, what else can oxygen do? And I'd heard about something called a hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is uh, what they use for dive accidents, decompression chambers. And so I started studying 
uh, hyperbaric oxygen on the internet and I followed a Dr. Hart, read his books, The Oxygen Revolution, and I thought this is something that could really help brain injury. And it's used extensively around the world, but not in New Zealand for brain injury. It's used for wound healing and gangrene and burns, diabetic wounds at Auckland and Christchurch hospitals, but it's not recognized for brain injury in New Zealand. Even though there's 60 years worth of clinical evidence that this is amazing for brain injury, they don't use it. Don't get me started on, on that. But So I decided I had to get her access to it. So I couldn't go to any clinics or, or anything, but I found someone who had a hyperbaric uh, chamber in New Plymouth, which was a miracle, but I found one. And th I approached these guys and I said, they weren't a medical facility or anything. Can I use your chamber? And this is my research and this is the situation. And they said, yes, you, you can use it. Sign a legal waiver from the lawyer and we'll let you use it. So I took, as soon as I got mum out of the hospital system, which was three months later, um, I'm on it. Oh, um, sorry, my phone, Siri's doing something here. Um, as soon as I got her out of the hospital, and I had a real battle to get her out of the hospital because they wanted to put her in an aged care facility, the answer for them is the answer for them is always if you're over 65, put them away somewhere. And I don't agree with that. And I really fought to get her home, and they wouldn't give us the resources. And they, she's 24/7 around the clock care at this stage, right? You take it, but I, I, I go up to the hospital one day with my big scary looking brother who looks like the rock and suddenly we got the resources that we needed and we were able to take her home. And unfortunately, that is the state of affairs a lot of the time. If you don't uh, advocate really strongly for what you need, then you won't get it. Um, anyway, I got her home out of the hospital after three months. I took her straight down into this chamber uh, put her in this hyperbaric chamber for five times a week for an hour and a half at a time, which everyone thought I was completely mad. This is in this big factory. We had to put her in a forklift inside this chamber. When I put her in there and we put her through this, um, this treatment, after 33 treatments, my mum started to, to wake up. She started to respond. Now, what hyperbaric does is it hyper-oxygenates the body. So you can take up to 12 times the amount of oxygen that you can at normal um, sea level. It pressurizes the oxygen molecules and makes them smaller so that they can pass through the blood-brain barrier and you can saturate the blood with oxygen. So this speeds wound healing, but it also um, um, attacks the, the cells in the, in, the, in the brain that are not dead, but that are damaged and that aren't working properly. And those ones you can you can sometimes bring back to life if you like, because they're still alive, but they're not doing their job properly. You can kind of wake them up. Yeah, so yes, exactly. If you can get enough oxygen, because oxygen's obviously fuel for those cells. Hmm. So by hyper-oxygenating and getting um, 12 times the amount of oxygen in there, then you're also hitting the inflammation pathway. So when you have massive uh, a brain event like this, you've got massive inflammation in the brain. And so it, it attacks those inflammation pathways and starts to reduce the inflammation. And it also produces more stem cells in the body. And this is beneficial for your whole body. And this is beneficial for not just people with brain injuries, but basically if you're a human, then hyperbaric's a good thing for you. If you're an athlete, if you've got um, any sort of concussions or multiple sclerosis or any of those things, it's really worth having a, a deep dive into the research to, to find out about this. Just cut a long story short, 33 treatments later, my mum started to have a response. She started to 
talk a little bit. She started to have some memory. She started to try to, to move her arms and to try to, to do things. So then I start, thought, this is working. So then the chamber got taken off on a, a contract overseas and I couldn't use it anymore. So I, I mortgaged the house and I bought a hyperbaric chamber and I installed it in our house. And I put her through over the next um, three years, another 250 sessions. Um, and the more I did this, the more she started to come back. And the more she came back, the more I had to work with. And this was a, a grueling process. It wasn't a magic bullet. It was just a, a piece of the puzzle, the hyperbaric. And then I studied functional neurology. I studied you know, physio. I studied um, nootropics, which are brain-enhancing supplements and drugs. I changed her diet to be a high-fat, good, good, uh, good-fats diet. So a keto diet, mostly, as far as I could do it with her. Um, and this is very, very important. So I developed this whole protocol for brain rehabilitation, basically. Um, and the upshot of it was, as she started to come back, I stay one step ahead of her, and I'm still doing that. And, and, and every new level that we would reach, I'd hit a new wall as well. There would be another problem to deal with. She had no spatial awareness. So it took me 18 months to just teach her to roll over in bed, just to use what muscles do you use to roll over in bed? It took me a year to get her to be able to stand without just crumpling uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a mess, you know, like just crumpling in, on the floor. She had no sort of idea where she was in space. But after, after a year, she started to be able to walk up and down on the parallel bars, holding the bars, very, very small, tiny steps. And as we progressed, she got better and better and better. And then her brain, you know, her brain was also starting to come back. She'd lost all her peripheral vision. That started to come back. Um, so, she, you know, she went from not having only able to see tunnel vision and having no spatial awareness to being now able to walk. So she now, four years later, my mum is completely normal again. She's reading, writing, walking a couple of Ks a day. We go to the gym five days a week. She's got her full power of attorney back over her life. She's got her full driver's license. She's fully independent again. And this is at the age of 78. So the event happens when she was 74, and I've had to retrain her whole brain. So <clears throat> there's something called neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change and use another part of the brain. When, when part of it dies, it can use another part to uh, retrain. And so this takes thousands of hours to do. So anyway, long story short, I now have my mum back. She's healthy again. She's, uh, we have some residue things like her walking speeds about three k's an hour instead of the normal four. Um, she has a bit of a, a, a lean to the side that we're working on from the, the right side paralysis that she suffered. But, you know, 90% 90, 90 she's, she's back. And, and intellect-wise, she's normal again. And this I've put into a book, this whole story and how I did it and what we did, the therapies, the mindset that was behind it. Because I came up against, you know, a hell of a lot of odds to, to, and obstacles that I had to overcome to get her back. And there was no guarantee at the start of this process that I would ever get to where I'm at now. In fact, I never thought we'd get this far. But um, every single obstacle that I came up against, it was just like running through New Zealand. You just dealt with it and you tried to push through it and you'd have plateaus where for months nothing would happen and then you'd, you'd go up again. And it's in those plateaus that most people give up and whatever challenge they're facing, they'll have a little win and they'll be all motivated and then there'll be a plateau for the next three months. 
that's where people give up. But if you can keep pushing through those plateaus and understand that is the process of, of progression and learning and getting better, then, you know, you can achieve amazing things. So being an ultra marathon runner was the best school you could ever have, the best lesson for something like this. Um, and the other part of that, that perfect storm was that once my mum got her consciousness back, she was willing to do whatever I said to get there. She didn't have a, oh, what, why am I doing this? What am I doing it for? I can't be bothered today. It was every single day. And that's why the title of the book is Relentless, because that's what you have to be to, to overcome something like this, day in, day out, grinding. And I treat her like an athlete. I treat her as if she's training for the damned Olympics, you know? It's the way I talk to her. It's the way I motivate her. And every single day, we're working on an aspect of her rehabilitation. And having that positive and that forceful drive and that persistence to keep going when everything looks bleak is, is a lesson, I think, that people can take away from this that will help them in any part of their life. So I really hope this book is going to help people, obviously people with brain injuries and strokes and concussions and TBIs and everything. But more than that, it's about the, the attitude and the approach to walk in blind faith and to overcome obstacles. It's about mental toughness and mental strength and resilience. And that the human body and mind is just capable of so more than what we think it is. And therein lies the value of the book. And I really hope that I can pay back some of the kindness that I had shown to me and some of the books that I had as a reference. Um, by, by doing this book, I hope to pay that forward. Mm, awesome, Lisa. And uh, I mean, uh, I think it's, it's relentlessness from your part. It's relentlessness from your mum's part as well. It's that, yeah, it's that yeah. two way street is that both of you had to, had to do that and had to, had to put in the grind to, the to grind. get there. And what was the, have you talked, I don't know if you've talked to your mum about it. Um, like, I guess love for your mum was the big thing that kept oh, yeah. you going on the way through it. Absolutely. But do you know what kept her going and, and putting yep. in that effort? Yep. And I, we still talk about this. Yeah, obviously mine was that I love my mum and I wanted her back selfishly. You know, I didn't want to let her go. And from my mum's point of view, she's very, um, she's the, the, the mother bear type person. You know, she just loves her family and will do anything for her family. And so she will sacrifice whatever it takes on her behalf to look after her family. So I'm constantly guilting her with, you cannot leave me. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to be around for your grandchild. You have to, you know, look after us. We're too young to be left alone on this earth, you know. And, and those sort of conversations that we have, and that makes her fight with everything she has, because that is what motivates her. So when you're talking to anybody, whether you're a coach or whether you know, you're doing something, you have to know where their buttons are and their triggers are to get them motivated, to keep them going when the times get tough and they get tough um, to, to push through those barriers. But that's definitely her motivation is their family. Awesome. And Lisa, if people are interested in, in getting the book or, or connecting with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, I'd love people to, to write to me or reach out to me. You can get the book at lisatamati.com. So that's the best place to find me. Um, lisatamati.com. Tamati is spelled T-A-M-A-T-I. And there's a shop button there with all, uh, all my stuff, uh, my books. I've got three books, but uh, Relentless is in there. Um, you can also find me on, on Instagram, at Lisa Tamati, or on Facebook, at Lisa Tamati. 
um, and I'm pretty responsive. Um, it's, it's quite chaos at the moment getting this damn book out. Um, but if anybody is wanting to come to my book launch tour, I'm touring through the country. Um, the book comes out on the 11th, but you can pre-order it now, 11th of March. Um, and I'm um, yeah, speaking right throughout the country. Um, so you can hop on my website and look at the, the launch do um, tour dates. Um, and come and visit me in a town near you, hopefully. Mm. <laughs> you can come along with me on the 30th of April to uh, the one in Wellington as well uh, and catch, catch Lisa in person. Lisa, I know that you've got to shoot away. Final question for you. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Oh, oh, oh man, throw me in the deep end, Chris. <laughs> I've, set you, I've set you up with a conversation first, though. <laughs> <laughs> a challenge for you guys. I want you to start to go away and start to examine what goal, what goal you want to chase this year? What one single goal? Like if there's, I mean, there's probably many goals, but pick one. And then I want you to go and do that exercise of the why, looking at your why you want to do this. And then I want you to make a plan for that, for that goal. And I want you to break it down into little bite-sized pieces. And I want you to start focusing. Even if you think this goal is out of reach, set some big, scary, hairy goal and then break it down into tiny steps along the way. And you won't know all the steps at the beginning. Break it down as best you can and then start taking action. Now, take action on day one and every day. And even if it's a tiny piece of action at the start, every time you take a piece of action, the next part of the path will light for you. So there's your goal. Go and understand what your goal is, why you're doing it, what your action steps are going to be, and then start taking small pieces of action every day towards that goal. There you go. Thank you. Lisa Tamati, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us today. <laughs> I love your show and I really appreciate the opportunity, Chris. And I wish uh, you very well and I can't wait to see you, mate. It'd be awesome. Awesome, yeah, and it'll be great. There you have it, team. I hope you enjoyed that one with Lisa and I today. Some really powerful messages coming through and a great challenge to leave us with as well is that picking something important to you for this year and really diving down into the why behind it and as Lisa mentioned in, in our chat it's not taking the superficial why it's going deeper it's peeling back the layers of the onions and quite a good exercise to do with that is to ask yourself why and give yourself an answer and then ask yourself why again for that answer that you gave yourself and then ask it again and then ask it again and then ask it again and slowly peel back the layers of the why so some people say do it five times some people say it, do it seven times either is probably pretty good um, some people say it, do it till you cry so choose the one that uh, that feels right to you and would love to hear your reasons behind why you're taking on a challenge this year Thank you to Jyland for your awesome editing skills. Thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the awesome theme music. And thank you to you guys as well for taking the time to get uncomfortable with Lisa and I today. 